0: Welcome back to Experience by Design podcast, where we explore experience designs of all kinds. I'm Gary David, co-host of the show and handling intro duties for this week. After four weeks of staying at home, sheltering in place, watching the news stream through our TVs, computers, and phones, we are witnessing society transform all around us. We are both observer and participant in this drama of deadly consequences. Now, as a sociologist, I am taught to study social institutions It's one of the things that is our stock in trade, looking at how society and social institutions are shaped and impact our lives. And the pandemic is impacting all of them, temporarily transforming institutions in this moment and potentially bringing about permanent changes. It is too early to tell what the long-term impacts are going to be, but one thing is certain. The pandemic is showing us where the cracks in these institutions have always been. One of the emerging stories, if you've been looking, and I advise not looking too much, it can be overwhelming, out of the COVID-19 era is how the pandemic is impacting the criminal justice system and legal institutions. We are seeing stories about police changing how they perform their duties based on the virus, limiting proactive policing, and placing N95 masks next to Kevlar vests as safety equipment. We have courts shutting down based on the virus, suspending trials, and releasing those awaiting trial. Prisons are facing a potential major crisis with outbreaks looming and emerging behind the walls. If you looked at any of the news around Rikers Island Prison in New York, you can see the alarming rate at which the virus can spread inside prisons. Inmates are getting sick. Correctional officers are getting sick. And the whole unfolding of events is raising questions around the underlying illness of the criminal justice system. What we are, see, what we are seeing happening today is not surprising given that we incarcerate more people by far than any other industrialized country in the world. But just because it's not surprising does not mean it should be acceptable. Today, we have attorney Marissa Bluestein, who drops by the Experience by Design Studios to talk about her work in the criminal justice system and what can be done to design a better system. While today's episode was recorded before the COVID-19 outbreak in the United States, we do examine the issues around the criminal justice system in general. From her founding work for the Pennsylvania Innocence Project to her current work as an assistant director of the Quattrone Center for the Affair Administration of Justice at the University of Pennsylvania, we explore what a just criminal justice system might look like. Marissa has a long career of working for justice and helping to better design the justice system. Through her work with the Innocence Project, Marissa was able to get 14 wrongful convictions reversed, and those are not just 14 in terms of numbers, but those are 14 lives that were incarcerated through wrongful convictions. Beyond that, she has worked with law enforcement organizations to promote better techniques to limit the potential for false convictions and improve investigations overall. And that's one of the things I really liked about our conversation was that it wasn't just a matter of trying to find where mistakes were made, but also trying to stop those mistakes from being made in the first place. We cover a lot of ground in our conversation from plea bargains to sentinel reviews to helping police do their investigative work better to the challenges with the public defender system. We explore many of the different facets of the system today and why that system no longer is working or hasn't been working for a long time to depending upon your point of view and your experience in that system. One of the major points to consider is how all of these elements are connected. If you want to design a better system, you need to start considering all of the things that are tied together in that experience ecosystem, in that space. And by trying to integrate how we improve all of them at the same time, maybe we can design a better system overall. And as we are seeing today, there is a lot of work to do. Times of crisis present opportunities for change, and while we might not know what changes are going to take place, it is the place of design to try to create a change that works for a positive future. Hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: ...the system because we just kind of, you know, pivot... It's not even pivot, bounce from one corner of the pool table to another without any real direction. We kind of make these grand announcements and grand changes without a full understanding of what the logical impact will be. And then when they have bad impacts, we go, oh, wow, that was unexpected. Let's change it again without using real information and data, which kind of drives me crazy um, so we wind up with this very happenstance type system, which has obvious profound impact on people's lives without real intentionality behind it. And I just find that insane, utterly insane.
0: One of the books I've been using in class is a book that I read as an undergraduate back in like 1990 called The Rich Get Richer and the Poor Get Prison by Jeffrey Raymond. Or Ryman. I don't know if you're familiar with this book.
1: No, I'm going to add it
0: to It's a great book and it's gone through like 12 editions. But one of the premises of the book is that the system is designed in the way it is in order to have the outcome it does, as bad as those outcomes might be, in order for certain people to remain in positions of power. Right. And so he's taking this very conflict uh, theory or Marxian approach to talking about the criminal justice system, basically saying nothing this bad could have been designed
1: Right, by accident, accident
0: yeah. it actually has to be some intelligent right, design that,
1: behind that's the ava DuVernay theory right behind 13th that this is all a, right. a relic of slavery
0: well I th- I th- you know he doesn't go there he doesn't quite go there i mean he talks around that a bit and again this is you know i first read this back in the 1990s so it's a little bit dated but it also is like the new jim crow argument right for those right. who are listening who may have read Michelle Alexander's book or may have heard of it or seen the documentary 13th. It was taking a system's perspective on things leads you to understand the historical antecedents that led to the current position we're in, which is predictable if you understand that larger context.
1: Right. And and I have to say, I mean, I was a you know, public defender for 10 years and ran an innocence organization for 10 years. And I never really made a lot of those connections. And even just from a historical perspective, it never, I never once really sat down and thought about the fact that we had, you know, I don't even embarrass me, I don't know how many emancipated slaves. And then we had to adjust our, You had to bring them into our economy immediately. We can't do that. We didn't have an economy that was based on, that could have absorbed that many people that quickly. So, you know, the kind of, fawning off into the criminal justice system as just a way of dealing with that number of people that we now have to deal with does kind of make sense. Um, Not from a good perspective, but it certainly adds some history to it that I really never considered.
0: Yeah. There was a book I just read recently. I can't remember the name of it, but it was by a journalist. I'll look it up. It was by a journalist who is in Los Angeles and she essentially in South Central area in Compton, and she was essentially linking the current day situation of minorities in Los Angeles to the movement of people in the antebellum South right. from, the, from the South to Los Angeles, basically. And she was tra- drawing those connections from point A or time A to time Z and why it exists the way it is for the very reasons that you just introduced.
1: Um, and, and of course there are, that's the flip side of that coin gets you into very dangerous, you know, racial ter- stereotype <laughs> um, ter- territory. Uh, yeah, so, in, but I can understand the other, um, I can understand that the other book though, that kind of comes to mind on that. And the other argument is a book called prisoners of politics, which is about breaking the cycle of mass incarceration by Rachel Barco. She's a professor at NYU law school. It's a slightly different take on that, but it really is talking about the, Uh, design of the criminal justice system in terms of policy setting and to focus in on something like um, mandatory minimums or other uh, increased uh, discretion with prosecutors to be able to pursue various different charges or even just increasing the number of crimes to give these tools over um, to prosecutors that has resulted in the undeniable mass incarceration of our citizenship but that these policies that were put in place were done so with absolutely no data backing. And you would never, ever, ever do that in another industry. You, you can't imagine the pharmaceutical industry introducing a new um, you know, medicine that hadn't been fully tested and didn't have data behind it. You know, it just it does not happen anywhere else. But here we think, oh, somebody got out and committed another crime. Let's keep them in longer. And so we we make bad law on the backs of horrific cases, and it just winds up every single time, resulting in horrific outcomes. But we keep doing it.
0: Yeah, I, I want to ask you about why why do we keep doing that? But before I get into that, I actually, wanted to back up. How did to ask you something about yourself? How did you even get into law in the first place? Was this always your you know, reading The Catcher in the Rye or I'm Sorry to Kill a Mockingbird or something like that and going, yes, I'm one of those kids. Who yeah, no. I actually, I always,
1: not even in the slightest. I actually always wanted to be a doctor. And then when I got to to college, um, just kind of looked around the other folks in the pre-med program and was like, well, I don't really have, I don't want to do what they do. I want to do something, I want to solve problems in a different way. And then when I was in college, we hosted a conference for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or SNCC. And um, seeing kind of a different path to social change and a broader perspective, really just kind of t- took me off that path. And then after a few years, after um, working running a, a homeless shelter, I decided to go back to law school. But my intent had been to go into housing law and to work in poverty issues. And then I did an externship when I was a third year law student with the public defender's office, and just fell in love with that. And so became a public defender. Um, did that for ten years, and then. Uh, after that uh, founded the Pennsylvania Innocence Project and and worked in post-conviction work. So um, it was kind of a meandering way into criminal law. But it's where I think, what I find fascinating about it from an intellectual perspective is that it really is where the power of the state meets the individual in in a very real, stark way. And from my personal interest here at the Quattrone Center, where I work now, Um, is really in police interrogations because to me that's really the crucible. I mean, I I really don't know of any other instance where the power of the state comes against the power of the individual in such a literal way. Um, And to try to even that balance out is very important because I think that 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 can kind of help with a whole host of issues that law enforcement is facing now. But certainly to even out that encounter um, I find something that's pretty critically needed in our justice system. Sorry, that was a long answer. There. I totally, it's well, it's a
0: long, it's a long journey. I actually, I, I when I, I do connect with this idea of wanting to change things for the better. I actually thought about going to law school, but early on, I saw the paper chase and it looked <laughs> yeah. hard.
1: Yeah, that would probably and, turn off.
0: Yeah, watching John, I think it was John Hausman, uh, you know, berate students and embarrass them. It, it seemed complicated and difficult. So I went into sociology because I there thought that would be easier.
1: Um, yeah, I did not find that at my law school. It was a, a quite a welcoming and uh, actually empowering experience. But I didn't go to Harvard. So there's that.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, every, everyone can't go to Harvard, right? I mean, I think it's okay. I mean, you've done, you've been all right. I I was reading that you got some awards and that's good.
1: Yeah. Well, you know,
0: for someone who didn't go
1: to Harvard, it's not bad. It's, it's not terrible, uh, but it's, it's the work that matters, right? I mean, it's, it's being able to change law. It's being able to make things better on a systemic level. That's really what is rewarding. And then of course, at the Innocence Project, being able to help reunite 17 families that had been torn apart by a wrongful conviction, that it just doesn't get much better than that.
0: And I think you know the Innocence Project for me is such a fascinating body of of work for a lot of reasons. But if I'm not mistaken, the founders of the Innocence Project were Barry Schneck.
1: Schneck, right? Correct. Yep. Schneck.
0: I'm sorry. Nope. Who okay. was the was the one of the attorneys in the OJ Simpson trial?
1: That is correct. In fact, uh, and his co-founder Peter Newfeld also was one of the attorneys. He's just a little less well known for that particular work, but. Um, and in fact, if you read Jeffrey Tubin's book, um, I think it's called "The Run of His Life" about that case. The chapter about Barry is the smartest lawyer in the room, um, which is a pretty apt discussion a description of him. <laughs> but yeah, so they founded they founded the Innocence Project uh, in New York in I think 1992, um, and then and now we have. I think 70 innocent, independent innocence organizations all around the world who are looking for those kinds of, to rectify those kinds of gross injustices. So it's it's an amazing trajectory in criminal law.
0: And it's one of those, I think when people talk about OJ or they talk about that time and I'm old enough to rem- watch television to see Judge Ito's, I think it was the first trial that was televised in that kind of way. I mean, so yep. it really did have a huge impact on the national consciousness. And of course, the aftermath of it was, was impactful as well. I actually, at the time I, I was doing my dissertation research um, or shortly thereafter in Arab owned liquor stores in Detroit. And it was on the heels of, you know, that April verdict in LA, which resulted in the, 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 the burning of yeah. stores, many of which were owned by Koreans. And so that was part of the legacy of OJ, but also the innocence project, which now, as you have talked about, and I want to talk about more, have turned into this, the preeminent organization to try to rectify injustices in the system.
1: Right. And it's not just what, um, so there's a misconception that all the innocence organizations are tied to the innocence project in New York. They're actually all independent of one another. Um, But one thing I found particularly important about the existence of innocence organizations is that the, most innocence organizations have a double eye. One is toward rectifying the injustices as they are now, looking for cases of people who are in prison who did not commit the crime of which they were convicted and then working to exonerate them. But they also have a different eye, which is trying to improve the system to prevent innocent people from being arrested and convicted in the first place. So there's always this kind of duality to the work, which I think is you know, ex- extraordinary because because innocence lawyers have a very unique... Um, view of the criminal justice system, but to be able to try to apply the lessons learned from false convictions and exonerations to the system to improve it going forward is something that's critically important. We see that in other industries, of course, right? You see that in um, aviation, in transportation, where there's an accident, and it's not just looking around to who who do we point the finger at, but we try to we analyze the situation. How did it happen? How do we approve? What what tweaks to the system do we need? And those type of sentinel event reviews are fairly new to criminal justice, but they come on the backs of these exonerations So because they have to mean something, right? It can't be that somebody gave 33 years of their life for absolutely no reason. We don't try, at least try to learn from that error. And so that's one of the big things we're trying to do now in the criminal justice system is adopt some of these other industry standards into our very well-misbegotten system. This idea of
0: quality control versus quality assurance, being yep. from Detroit in manufacturing, you know, the idea of we want to make sure the process itself doesn't result in errors, that's quality assurance, and quality control, when errors do occur, we want to make sure that uh, we can catch them and rectify them before they cause further harm.
1: Right. That's exactly right. And, and we see that in some ele- independent elements of the criminal justice system, specifically in forensics. Right. I mean, DNA labs, if you know, accredited DNA labs have to go through that quality assurance, quality control processes. Right. Um, you know, but we don't see that in really many other aspects of it because it's, we don't have those same levels of need to accredit or keep up. It certainly law enforcement doesn't have that. We don't have a quality assured quality control aspect in law enforcement. There's a voluntary accreditation process, which they can go through, but it's not. Uniform and it's very, very few. So, you know, having, even having these conversations where we're trying to incorporate other industry standards into the criminal justice system is relatively new. I mean, not just relatively, it's new and it's not even uniform. I mean, it's a, a new concept to many jurisdictions that I work with all around the country.
0: It's, it's kind of mind blowing because when I've worked with, you know, former detective Jim Trainum, when I've done my own work on police interrogations, applying conversation analysis to look for those conversational features, a lot of the things that I would have assumed such as law enforcement wants to know when it makes mistakes, turns right. out to be a naive assumption. From my and opinion, yes. one, of the things I, one of the things I think about is in, in terms of raising this, this issue, you know, to a national level, both through these innocence organizations, but also perhaps the one that's done it the most is just Netflix. Yeah. And the number of shows on Netflix right now, which deal with, you know, potential injustices in the system and people being in prison or outcomes that really aren't borne by the evidence that was collected. And the one I, the one I recently watched, which was kind of crazy, was a confession killer about Henry Lee Lucas. And I don't know if you've seen
1: it at all. No, I have not. Do you know about Do you know about Henry Lee Lucas at all? I the name is familiar. I would probably need to quick Google it to check.
0: But well, well, let me just fill you in because it's the most insane thing in the world. He ended up being uh, identified as a killer in a case, and then upon sentencing, he says, "Well, what about the other hundred people that I killed?" Which, of course, draws some interest. Wait, is this like, the governor in Texas? It is a gentleman in Texas. He ends up confessing to like 300 murders. Right. And, and they keep just piling on. People from around the country keep contacting Texas, this white right. jurisdiction in Texas, to go there and see if he had anything to do with their unsolved murder. So right. it's basically a closed case factory. And but, it becomes obvious that there's no way this guy could have driven across country physically in the time to commit some of these crimes. But the system itself, people in the system, not the entire system, but many people, did not want to know the truth.
1: I, yeah, I don't think that's inaccurate. I mean, we, um, when I first started working at the Pennsylvania Innocence Project, one of my first volunteers is a lawyer named um, Jim Fogorski. And Jim had called me. He was an associate at uh, a very, very large firm, Deckert, which is one of the largest firms in the world, but he was here in Philadelphia. And, and when I asked him why he wanted to volunteer, he said that, well, he had been an officer for 25 years with the Philadelphia Police Department. Before becoming a lawyer, in fact, he had run uh, and been f- high up in narcotics and did a lot of the ran a lot of the inter- narcotics investigations. And he said that one thing that just continually bothered troubled him was when he would have you know a, a drug dealer in his office or at his desk, like in, interviewing him, going through the case or after an arrest or even just for intelligence gathering, and the dealer would talk about a homicide. And Jim would said that he would call down to the homicide department within within the police department to give the information. We get the response, no, it's okay. We already got our guy. Don't worry about it. Um, right. And Jim was just shocked that his fellow officers would not want to know if they were potentially on the wrong path. Um, and so that just so, it, it angered him and frustrated him. And just, he found that just so unbelievable that when the project opened, he said, this is what I want to do. Um, but and that's it surprises me too, because most of the officers I know, none of them you know want to get the wrong guy, but it is kind of shocking that when they have the opportunity to get the right guy, those steps aren't necessarily taken. And that is pretty shocking.
0: And I if I one of the things that I do with that and teaching at a business school and talking with people in business is what are your metrics? And why are those metrics the right ones for the outcomes you profess to want to reach? And so, for instance, I recently worked with a company and their call center training and one of the metrics they had of success, quote unquote success, was, um, you know, the the length of time on the phone with the customer. Ideally, they want a shorter length of time on the phone. Well, why? What does that have to do with customer experience? Okay, is a shorter length of time automatically better for the customer, or is it that you just want to have greater turnover to get through the calls in in a a faster way? Is the is the metric serving the company and not the customer? And if it's not serving the customer, then you need to change the metric. And a lot of a lot of organizations fall prey to this idea of the metrics that we are using really aren't the metrics that are aligned with our stated goals. And in right. this case, the metric is closed cases versus right confessions or right Correct. convictions.
1: Right. Right convictions. And that's, um, you know, that's all part of the understanding. But if you start ta- throwing around words like metrics in the criminal justice system, you know, most people think you're talking about centimeters or meters. They don't understand what, that you're talking about measurable goals and outcomes.
0: That um, interesting.
1: Huh. You know, because it's just such a foreign concept to most of us on this. And then you have lawmakers setting policy and making decisions, none of whom have ever been part of the criminal justice system, either as attorneys or as participants. And so they're making assumptions based on things, um, based on outcomes that they perceive, right? That might be ensuring that people are are safe because then I can get elected again, which just winds up feeding into the biggest problems that we have. And so it's this very frustrating cycle of ignorance that just kind of continues to feed in itself. And that one of the things that we try here to do is insert data and information into that and talk to them about what do you want? What are the outcomes you want? what is What are you trying to achieve? Um, because that discussion, the what are you trying to achieve is not generally driven by information. It's not generally driven by research and good policy, but by political outcomes. And that's what is so greatly frustrating. I mean, you have, you look at Megan's law, right? As an example, right? You have this law that comes out of California. Now I think every state has it, or most of them do, requiring a, a whole host of, I would say, backwards policies for people who are sex offenders. Um, none of that was supported by data. None of it was supported by research. And now you have you know, the consequences of, People being on these lists of having to report, um, that they can't get jobs, they can't work, they can't get their lives back. So you have these—you you stopped people from being able to move forward in their lives because of draconian policies that make no sense. And trying to back, trying to backtrack them, and you're saying, okay, well maybe we don't need a lifetime reporting. And now you're going to get thrown out of office because people think you're you're not tough enough on on crime. And then you can imagine what the political ads that would get run are. Uh, so you know, when you have a system right. that is so beholden to the political process, you, it's, I think, an open question about whether you really can have policy, which is based on real data and information, as opposed to anecdotal kind of lock them up mentalities. And that's what's so frustrating. Among many.
0: Among many things. It, 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 what it reminds me of a study that was done by uh, a sociologist that I know, where it was in Boston years, a long time ago. But basically, he looked at a community. He was doing policing research. And he was looking at this one community outside of Boston. And the uh, it was coming for re-election, the re-election cycle. And so the the mayor, I think it was, I might be mistelling the story, but let's say mayor, said, well, we're going to uh, create a gang squad in the town. And then any any juvenile disturbance that happens will be funneled through the gang squad. And of course, what happens? The the numbers of gang incidents skyrocketed, okay? Because now there's a gang squad, and now they're counting these incidences, where, which were counted previously in a different kind of way. Now they're counting as gang activity. And when it came, so now you have a now you have a crime problem. And the way they right. solved the prime crime problem, the way the mayor solved it, was by getting rid of the gang squad. Or changing the gang squad, which then resulted in the numbers going down. It reminds me in The Wire, this idea of, you know, in the TV show, juking the stats. You right. know, there's, there's ways of juking the stats to create the data to be very different. And it's to drive perception to have the goal of having people endorse the mayor or endorse, uh, you know, uh, an increase in taxes or whatever it is, right? It's, it's a way of, of basically managing perception. Right, exactly. And so then like, what, what's, the, what, what's the thing that we're actually about when, as you said, you have so many competing interests, none of which may have anything to do with actual education or adjudicating of justice.
1: Right, exactly. And it's, and when you have those kind of competing outcomes, some of which have absolutely nothing to do with getting the right person in the right way and the right you know, outcome, um, you know, it's kind of easy to see how things get off track very quickly. If they were ever on the right track to begin with.
0: And, and so one of, the, one of the things you kind of just glossed over, you said, you know, I started the Innocence Project in Pennsylvania. I mean, OK, why that? And like, what was that process like, given the you know, that early on the resistance towards criticizing law enforcement used to be pretty stiff uh, in certain parts of you know, society? that's, I think, changed a little bit with people's, you know, with these shows and, and other kinds of high-profile cases. But what was it like starting this Innocence Project with the aim of both improving what the police do or what law enforcement, the process is, and also freeing people who
1: were found guilty? Right. I mean, what I found very, what well, was so interesting about the policy work, so I'll talk about that first part first. Um, you know, I mean, it was a public defender. I was used to for 10 years, cross-examining police officers, trying to catch them in inconsistencies and then arguing those inconsistencies meant something in front of a jury. Right? So I came at this from a very one-sided part of the system. And then here I was asking to speak to groups of law enforcement, to stand up in front of them, to tell them that you're doing it wrong. Right. Um, right. And cool. there are better ways. It so, uh, must maybe, have made you
0: very popular.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, what shocked me was one, how willing officers were to hear from me and two, how welcoming they were of the information. So like I would do a presentation on eyewitness memory and and how we can improve um, photo arrays and lineups to try to minimize the risk of a witness identifying the wrong person. And what I universally found was officers, not just Interested in, but hungry for that kind of information and data and science, right? Because I think it was they were so unexpectedly, tr- you know, hearing this at a professional level. Um, they're used to people kind—I think—kind of just coming in and yelling at them, right? Like, but to present actual information about how you can do it better um, was very welcome. And so I actually wound up working with a lot of law enforcement agencies around Pennsylvania to try to help them revise their policies. What shocked me was the level of resistance from prosecutors to those changes. Um, Interesting. And so I heard from many chiefs I worked with, look, Marissa, I think this is a good idea. We want to implement these changes, but the DA won't let me um, or won't accept it. And so we had to start working with prosecutors and kind of trying to get them on board with the same kind of um, level of, information that we were giving to law enforcement. So what I found really surprising was here I was standing up in front of, you know, the Pennsylvania chiefs of police explaining all about the science and how they should do it wrong and being warmly welcomed. Um, It was weird to to short answer your question. That's very weird. Former public defender. But when you, when you're talking the language of innocence, you're really talking about getting the right guy. And, no one in law enforcement is against that, right? So when you're coming at it from, look, all we want to do is make sure that the facts line up in such a way that they lead you to the right person and that that person can be held accountable for their actions and that we're not mistakenly getting the wrong guy, that's a universal message. And that message resonates whether you're a prosecutor, a judge, a, a police officer, or a defense counsel. Um, you know, Every player in the criminal justice system, at least insofar as the courtroom is concerned, is interested in that part of it. You know, once you get to trial, there, you know, people in the room have different desired outcomes, right? The prosecutor wants a conviction, the defense attorney wants a not guilty, and the judge wants to go home early. So you've got you know, that aspect. But before you get there, everybody wants the evidence to line up the right way. Um, and so I think it's because innocent right. organizations are kind of in the middle, right? They're not really defense counsel. They're not really, certainly not prosecutors or law enforcement, but they're talking that language of universality, that I think is where all the commonalities kind of come together. And while we can butt heads on any particular case, when it comes to that level of discussion about the system, nobody will disagree with that fundamental concept. However, we design our system, it should be designed in such a way that we're getting the right person and holding them accountable in the right way. Nobody disagrees with that. So starting that innocence organization and kind of going out and having those discussions was really all about trying to change the uh, open narrative and discussion and and push of the criminal justice system um, and using innocence to do it. Because if there's anything we can agree on, it's somebody who's innocent doesn't belong in prison. And if we can learn how they got there and change the system to prevent it from happening again, why on earth would you not support that?
0: Do you ever think that the reception, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not criticizing this, but do you think the reception might have been, how it might have been different if the name of the organization was different?
1: I very often not felt that way. Part of that, honestly, is, is a brand confusion issue. And Barry knows this, so I, I'm comfortable sharing this with you and your millions of listeners, that um, when I went right. to do a law enforcement training, literally, my first slide was, I am not Barry Sheck. And I had a picture of me, a picture of Barry, right? And from mine, it would say, right. born in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. His said, born in Brooklyn, New York. Um, for me, you know, was in law school when O.J. Simpson trial happened. His was on the O.J. Simpson defense team, right? So I was like, look, he's not me. I'm not him. You know, We have an innocence. We, we share the same name, but we do different stuff. And that actually helped a lot, right? So. Uh, so I would right. let Mary know on a regular basis that I was throwing him under the bus so that I could talk to these cops. Um, and he was completely fine with it. <laughs> so, so yes, the name itself, I think in some ways is a hindrance, in some ways it was a benefit. Um, but we were always kind of able, able to make it work for us.
0: It is, it is, it is an interesting problem to have. I was, you know, about, you know, I don't know what you would call it. I'm not suggesting you change it, but that police by and large are trained and they have to survive by making quick judgments about threats and, and the likelihood of that threat being, you know, enacted upon or acted upon. And here you come saying, I'm an innocence project. And, you know, if they think you're from the, you know, the person who was involved in the OJ trial, we're just setting people free because you screwed up. I could see why there might be some. Resistance about you know embracing that
1: message absolutely and that's why it's all about the messaging right so when I'm talking to law enforcement it's never you screwed up it's you know it's not about bad actors it's about bad methods that the methodology you're using is outdated and not supported by science we know how to do things better and here's how you do it which is why I think um, it's going to be much harder to reach consensus and change in the areas of false confessions and interrogations because with eyewitness identifications, I can say, okay, you guys are doing it wrong and here's the better way and give it to them. Right. And say, and here that Here it's all you need to do to change is make these kind of tweaks to the way you're doing things and your uh, likelihood of, of identifying an innocent person plummets. Your, your identifications are going to be stronger, more reliable, and will hold up in court. Cops love to hear that with a false confession. I can go in and talk to a chief of police and say, look, you guys are doing this all wrong. You're using this read technique, which is coercive, and it can yield to false confessions. And the chief says to me, you know what? I agree with you. What do I do instead? Right. I don't have an answer for that. I mean, I do, but the answer is long and convoluted and complicated. You know, without that kind of a you know, on-the-shelf ability to go in and retrain around interrogations, it's going to take much, much longer. Because And now you're into issues of culture and that you know, cops don't want to be told to change the culture and way they're doing things. What we're really telling them is the way you communicate with people is flawed and you have to do it differently. That's not an easy message to hear. And without having that, and here's how you fix it, easily, without a huge resource in investment or taking cops off um, their, their beats for any extended period of time, it's not going to change. Um, and that's why I think false confessions is going to be the much harder nut to crack in all this.
0: And I do think that in any, in any kind of organization or any kind of occupation, especially a managerial one of sorts, there is this sense of just tell me what to do. Correct. Right. So, in right. this situation, you know, how do I know if somebody's lying? Well, they cross their arms. Well, that's right. just patently ridiculous, right? Oh, but right. nevertheless, it's, it's simple to memorize and then apply. And there's this expectation that human interaction is easily reducible to any singular trait or utterance. And this is why, you know, there are books like I was just publishing a book called The Handbook of Deception Research. And there's it's like 500 pages long because people want to know, well, what does a person do when they lie? And beyond the answer of they're not telling the truth, that's what they do. But how can you tell? Right. That's a bit more complicated. And there's no easy way. Around that.
1: That's right. And trying to tell somebody, you know, if they look up to the right when they're talking, then they're accessing their memory. And if they look up and to the left, they're actually making it up. Sounds somewhat scientific because you're talking about frontal lobe and cortex and all that, but it's nonsense. Um, but it's right. an easy answer and it's an easy thing to, to say. Um, and you know, I actually attended a retraining um Me too. technique, and you know, well, you know, you have all my sympathies then, because you know exactly what I've been through. <laughs> Um, but they spent literally three days talking about non-behavior cues for deception, none of which is supported by science, all of which is, in fact, debunked. But now you have trained people to believe that they are human lie detectors, and they're going out and, and having the conducting these interrogations with zero follow-up and zero insurance of any kind of sticking to the limited program that they've just learned. Yeah, And then you've inflated their ability, their confidence, and their own ability to, to you know, figure out deception. And now they're moving into a, a coercive interrogation method, which is aimed at trying to get them to admit to what it is they did. Um, you know, that's a a flat out recipe for false confessions. There's no question. You know, whereas I've also attended trainings by Hig, which is about empathy and rapport and narrative and autonomy and agency on behalf of the person who's being interrogated, well interviewed, they don't like the word interrogation. You know, 180 degrees around, all supported by science, all about it. And you get more reliable actual information coming from that interview than you do in an interrogation with Reed. Um So there's no question that there's a better way, but it is such a huge resource and change um, of culture and uh, reorientation that that's going to take a very long time to get there.
0: For those who are listening who might not know what the Reed technique is, R-E-I-D is this technique that's, you know, very... Extensively used in the United States, which involves nine steps, and it's it's based around psychological manipulation and to convince the to make it easier for a person to confess. So you're lowering the barrier or the threshold for confession through various kinds of manipulative techniques. And it's been found if you don't ask the reed Institute this, but it's been found to actually lead to a higher instance of false confessions. But nevertheless, because it is a nine step, I mean, people like steps. They like to be told precisely what to do, how to do it, because then I would say, this is my theory, they're not accountable for the decision-making. They can fall back on, I was doing what I was told. It's like the good German, right? It's like, I was just doing what I was told. It wasn't my fault. I don't have agency. Whereas when you're asking people to make decisions that involve judgments, now they're on the hook. And people, by and large, don't like that feeling of being culpable for decision-making when there's another method being offered in which their culpability is removed by structure.
1: And it's interesting because what Reed says, right, is that um, Reed's answer to their implication in in historic cases of false confession and wrongful conviction— is it's not that the method was wrong, it's that they applied it wrong, right? So it's kind of, you get that inverse, right? So, um, which is actually, I think, pretty interesting. And then, and I said the word HIG and I should have explained that HIG stands for High Value Detainee Interrogation Group, which is a now 11-year-old program from the Department of Defense signed into law by uh, President Obama um, to actually use science to investigate how do, what leads people to confess um, you know, what does it mean for interrogators to, to work directly with people who are um, you know being interrogated, being interviewed, and you know, how it, based more on human memory and science than just anecdotal information? And there are now over 200 right. published studies um, that have come out of HIG and are now informing um, certainly international efforts of intelligence gathering through the military, but now, increasingly working with local law enforcement to retrain detectives around some of these more scientific standards.
0: You mentioned science. One of the things that I noticed is absent from a lot of this, going back to my, you know, my research method training days of taking those classes and also teaching it, is this idea of hypothesis testing. And an investigation at its heart is a hypothesis. Correct. This thing caused that thing. That person killed that person, right? That money's gone because that person took it. So it's A relationship between two or more variables. But in hypothesis testing, we're taught that we don't want to prove the the alternative hypothesis that X caused Y, but try to disprove that. And if you can't disprove it, then it must be true. So it's it's a way of dealing with potential bias, essentially.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's what we do those talks all the time with, with law enforcement in terms of cognitive bias and confirmation bias issues, right? So when I do this with my students, Um, I borrow from the, some, some of the studies on confirmation bias, I'll put up the numbers two, four, six on the board, right? And I say, okay, those numbers are in that, in that row for that reason, in that order for that reason, you tell me the rule that puts them in that order. And usually they'll say increasing integers by two. I say, okay, so give me three numbers to test your rule. And inevitably they'll say eight, 10, 12, or 12, 14, 16, or some other group of increasing integers by two. And I'll say, yep, that conforms to my rule you know, do you think you're right or do you want to test it some more? They'll say, I want to test it some more, give me some more numbers. And again, it'll be a set of three, maybe it's 200, 202, 204. um, And I'll say, yup, that comports with my rule. Um, And then when I, and they say, okay, I'm done. I'll say, well, you're wrong. My rule was increasing integers um, without any plus two or plus anything. And I said, but did you really test your rule or did you confirm it? And you know right. when you talk about it, they always kind of say, if you wanted to test your rule, you would have given me numbers that don't conform to it. You would have said maybe 14, 12, 10, or one, two, three. It, that would have tested your rule. Um, instead, you just look for information to confirm it. There is absolutely right. no difference with law enforcement looking to solve a crime where they don't know who the outcome is. If they have a suspect, they believe it to be, you know Marissa Bluestein, information which conforms to that hypothesis is going to be seen as reliable. Information which contradicts that hypothesis is seen as unreliable. It's not because they're trying to wrongly convict Marissa Bluestein of a crime she didn't commit. It's because they literally don't see the in value of the information because it doesn't conform to their hypothesis. And that's exactly what you know, sure. what this is all about. it's It's why it's not bad cup, no donut it's not that they don't, they're trying to do something wrong. It's that because they are human beings, they process information in such a way, which leads them down the wrong road. And if you talk to somebody like Jim Trainum, they will say, you want to prevent wrongful convictions? Talk to cops about confirmatory bias, because that's, that's how this train gets on the wrong track initially. And then the prosecutors looking at it from the same perspective. And then the, you know, that leads to other investigative avenues, which they wouldn't have followed if they had a different suspect. It just—it has so many domino effect ramifications that it—and yet it's something that's so misunderstood in the criminal justice field. I mean, it is
0: tricky to say to an investigator or a police officer: the thing you want to do is try to prove that you're wrong. Correct. Right, I mean, which is essentially, you know, in hypothesis testing, that's how we operate. But nevertheless, that's right. That is kind of what you want to do. I mean, there's there's this you need to maintain a healthy skepticism for the conclusions that you believe you're reaching, that there might be alternative ways. Right. Or just get him to watch the movie The Unusual Suspects or the Usual Suspects, right? Right. Because that 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 serves the same point that we can be easily steered into directions based upon our Tendency to create patterns before the pattern can be accurately or adequately expressed.
1: Exactly. And it's part of human nature, right? We need to establish those patterns in order to make sense of the information that's coming in. Otherwise, we would just be like blobs. We couldn't move through the world. You have to process it. Um, and it's the same whether it's law enforcement or prosecutors. Prosecutors do the same thing. Remember, prosecutors, very often you'll read in the paper, sadly about cases where prosecutors should have handed over information at the trial level that they didn't hand over that turns out to be exculpatory. Well, it's not that they're sitting on a piece of evidence they think is going to disprove them. That's absolutely not how it works. It's because they look at a piece of evidence and don't see the exculpatory value of it because they're looking at it through the lens that this is the person who committed the crime. So right. it's it's completely understandable why they don't. Hand it over. There's a pretty easy fix for that. Require prosecutors to hand over all the information they have and not make judgment calls about it. Um, that fixes it, right? Then, then anybody violating that rule is doing it for um, a negative reason and intentional. And then you have a whole different issue. But at least insofar as as stopping that error from happening for people who are well intentioned and want to see the system work as a whole, that takes care of that, right? So there are sometimes very easy fixes to this. Um, sometimes it's harder, but it does help to kind of negate that, that, you know, kind of push toward con- confirming our hypothesis instead of challenging it. And it's something that's pretty cr- critical and endemic throughout the entire criminal justice system without a doubt.
0: Well, in a lot of, a lot of experience design work, like customer experience or employee experience, and I guess legal experience and legal design. It's not just a matter in those areas of tweaking things to make for better outcomes. It's really cultural change of the organization and the system so that this kind of sentiment is inherent in what everybody does. Right. Right. It's, it's not just the person in customer experience. It's not just a person on the phone is nice to the customer so the customer is happier. It's that everyone in the organization sees it as their job to do better by the customer. Likewise, an employee experience, it's everyone in the organization, especially management and higher up, sees it as their job to provide a more fulfilling and purpose-driven workplace for the employees. So, I mean, in your experience, how does that kind of perception or that kind of orientation lead to, how how can we apply it to like legal experience and and legal design?
1: Well, I mean, certainly in terms of the criminal law, um, it's very difficult, right? Because the different actors within the criminal law system do not have the same desired outcome, right? The defense lawyer wants a not guilty for their client, or at least the best, the most minimized outcome. Prosecutor wants to get them guilty on the highest level. Um, you know, the victims kind of caught somewhere in between because they don't certainly don't want to get the wrong guy, but you know they also want some accountability for what they've been through. So you have a system that's built around individuals who have very different desires and different. And are oriented to different outcomes. So I, it's going to t- take a very large change. I mean, part of the discussion we have here at the Quadron Center is whether those kinds of um, you know, values and, and kind of orientations can be applied at the criminal justice system at all, right? I mean, we tend to take the optimistic side that yes, it's possible that stakeholders can come to the table and have these discussions in a way, at least after the fact, once we recognize that there's been an error that nobody wants, you know how you, we can certainly look at those and try to improve the system. The question is whether we can kind of all have that kind of mindset going into a courtroom, you know, right. for a trial. Um, and it may be that the the way that uh, certainly our criminal justice system is set up is that once you get to that point, you know, I don't know that we can all say we have a, an agreement on what the desired outcome should be. Um, but until we walk into that door, we should all have the same desire. So I mean, I think that. There are certain aspects of the system and points of the system at which um, that kind of a mindset would make a lot of sense. Um, it's questionable whether it's actually, as the trial itself is going on, whether that you know can work or not. Certainly, we all want to abide by, you know, we want everything to be constitutional. We want everything to be procedurally correct. We want everything to be fair. Nobody would, I think, really question that. So some of those values are certainly universal. But in when you start measuring outcome, you know I think a lot of those players are going to have a different view on what those outcomes should be, and that that may just be the nature of the beast. But there are certainly elements of the system that can be much more amenable to that way of thinking, without a
0: doubt. Well, I'm glad that you guys are you you all I should say are optimistic because otherwise that would be make for very depressing meetings at the Quattrone Center. If yeah. <laughs> you didn't think people could come. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine what that but that meeting would look like if you think that the actors are actually working in a malevolent way. And act you know, and and a lot of people do, right? I mean, perception of police, for instance, I mean you've given a portrayal of police, which is one I share, which is by and large, police want to do the right thing and they want to be given the tools to do that right thing. And it's a stressful job and they're making a lot of judgment calls right. and give me the tools to do it better versus you know, people who are part of the system are only there to screw people um, who are innocent and they don't care if they get the right person or not. I mean, if you, depending upon how you approach the problem, from what philosophy, it's going to shape and impact what you think possible solutions are.
1: Of course. I mean, when I work with my law students, we, I always say the same thing about, like, if you just take the Philadelphia Police Department, um, you know, there are 6,000 sworn members of the police department, 6,000 sworn members, right? And, if you talk to the folks who do police abuse and police harassment cases and, and whatnot, they'll tell you that it's essentially the same 38 knuckle-dragging idiots who are at the heart of those cases. You can't paint the entire Philadelphia Police Department with the brush of those who are consistently violating the rules. Um, you know, right. You know, to an extent, I understand that there's somewhat of a blind eye and it, and it turned, you know, turned attention away from that. Yes. But there are literally... Thousands of individuals right now in the city of Philadelphia who are trying to do the right thing under very, very difficult circumstances. And you, I don't think you can have a realistic view of law enforcement if you can't accept that. You can't go in there with such an eye that every police officer who's out there is trying to do their best to create a bad situation for the people that they serve. It's just not my experience. Uh, my experience is quite the opposite, that there are a small number of people who have a very bad motivation for going into law enforcement, but it is a very, very small number.
0: And I think in nowhere, no, no other place, no other job that I can think of, I mean, besides maybe medicine or pharmaceuticals, things like that, you know, life and death jobs, where following the rules becomes as important as law enforcement. If I, if I don't follow the rules at my job, like the first day of class, I didn't show up with the syllabus. I didn't, it's not really a rule. It's more of a norm, but it's something that we tend to expect. And I had good reasons for not doing that. But you know, if I don't follow the rules explicitly every single day, if I work around the rules in some ways, no one's really going to care. And in many jobs you have to work around the rules in order to get things done. I mean, if you follow the rule all the time, it's odds are things aren't going to work as well. But in law enforcement, if you don't follow the processes, the standards, the procedures, that can cause either, that can cause very severe outcomes, either in right. terms of people's, you know, health, health and safety, or you capture somebody who is guilty. And now because you didn't follow a procedure, you're on the stand that's, that's identified and the case is thrown out.
1: Right. That's right. And it, it's, it's quite stark in terms of not following those rules. Um, and it also is reflective of training, right? I mean, you can have the best rules in the world, but if you're not training people on it, and giving them the understanding of why these rules are important and why they have to do it, then there's going to be an undercurrent of, eh, I can cut some corners. Um, so to me, they kind of go, they're back-to-back important to have the right rules in place, but to train them on why those rules are important and what they mean, so that there's a buy-in and not an, a, a kind of an organized attempt to opt out, um, which you, know, you can see in any group of people <laughs> like who just don't want to follow what they right. have to do. So
0: so one of the things that we like to talk about in design, especially I like to talk about, is participatory design. So when you work at the Quattrone Center, to what extent do you bring together uh, law enforcement, DAs, public defenders, uh, people who were incarcerated, people who were wrongly incarcerated, people in the community, because the system is there. It's supposed to be designed to to serve all of those stakeholders, as you said. To what extent in this legal design era that we're we're entering into – do you try to get people to design outcomes together to, to, to achieve better kinds of systems, products, services, and, and, and those kinds of things?
1: Right. So outcomes. one critical way we do that is through these sentinel event review processes. So we work with several jurisdictions around the country, including Philadelphia, where if there is an undesired outcome in the criminal justice system, then we can take that event and then look at it like from with all stakeholders present do a full investigation of that incident, and then determine how did it happen, why did it happen, and how do we prevent it from happening again in the future? So we've done that here in Philadelphia on two cases of wrongful convictions. Well, one was a wrongful arrest, uh, which we refer to as the Lex Street murder case, which um, there was an incident, I think, in the early 90s of uh, a group, uh, several individuals were murdered inside a drug house, and it was the largest Um, mass murder in Philadelphia history. Uh, The individuals that they arrested for initially confessed to it, um, but they were not the ones who committed the murder. And they actually were able to successfully prosecute the, the correct individual. So I think anybody would agree that getting the wrong guys first is bad. That they confessed to it is right. bad, and that it put off holding accountable yep. the true perpetrators was bad, right? So that was a, an undesired outcome. So by reviewing that case and what happened in that case, we were able to come up with a series of recommendations for the system to prevent it from happening again. We looked at another case of an individual who was exonerated in the post-conviction. Um, a lot of his conviction centered around um, a failed chip, uh, failed data piece in his phone, which recorded a video an hour off, like instead of 10 o'clock, it was actually nine o'clock. And that impacted his uh, alibi, which turns out he actually was not the person who committed the crime, but because his phone didn't adjust for daylight savings time or adjusted in a very weird way. um, The video of him being somewhere else was improperly recorded. So we looked at that case as well, like what can be done differently. So it's learning from these past um, cases with, the help of stakeholders who are invested in the process, part of the process and agree to adopt the changes once they're made, because they're they're unanimously decided upon that can have huge impact in the criminal justice system. In fact, we were just yesterday discussing with a group of victims, um, a a group, an organization called healing justice, which works with the crime victims in exoneration cases uh, to try to learn from their experiences and how to improve the system um, based on their experiences and, and you know, how they travel through this journey um, and that trying to incorporate that viewpoint into these sentinel event reviews we think could be very beneficial um, if done in the right way. So that's one way to engage stakeholders in a, in a way to look at the system, which isn't about holding any individual accountable. It's not about you know blaming a prosecutor or blaming a, a, an officer, but finding out where the system itself erred. And that is a a pretty exciting way to go forward and one that a lot of prosecutors around the country are interested in engaging in that process around lots of different types of error.
0: And I I was looking at their Twitter feed because I was looking at the Quattrone Center and it might have been the first time that I saw the phrase to improve criminal justice experiences. I mean, we are living in the age of experience, as I like to call it, where everything is Noun experience, and I thought, oh, criminal justice experience. Yeah, sure, why not? I mean, so we are designing these experiences both in the legal system and the criminal justice system. And and why we have been talking about these very large changes. One of the things that we were recently worked on together, I helped, I tried to help with, was very the issue of plain language. You. Well, I like, I hope so. Thank you for that. Uh, plain language and legal design. Just you know, this the fact that the wording on forms or, or the way right. we talk about these things can be very alienating for large numbers of people and create a negative experience. So, you know, can you, can you mention a little bit about this idea of plain language and legal design? Cause I think it's a nice example of a simple solution to what can then oh, yeah. be uh, magnify problems.
1: Absolutely. So the problem was uh, I was working with a prosecutor in Florida who was running a conviction integrity unit. So in a conviction integrity unit, is a specialized unit within a prosecutor's office charged with uh, investigating claims of actual innocence. And if they find somebody to be actually innocent of the crime, working to get them out of prison and exonerate them. So this um, prosecutor had been, had designed a questionnaire essentially to send out to convicted individuals in prison to ask them about their case. But she was finding that she wasn't getting information back that she could really do anything with. And so I asked to see the petition And it it occurred to me as someone who has worked with convicted individuals now for over 20 years, that the way the questions were asked were alienating because they were kind of above the reading level of folks who would be getting it. And she was asking for a lot of narrative, like, tell me this, explain that, that," um, and having them do that, which is not easy for folks who are in prison. For one, the discussion around convictions in prison is not about facts. It's about, you know, procedure, about how unjust a procedure was or how unfair. And it really is not about the facts of the case. And this prosecutor really needed this person to talk about the facts of the case. Um, So one, she was asking about it in a way that was unfamiliar to the folks who were needing to respond. The language was above where they needed it to be. And it was very dense. So I asked for your help because of your understanding of linguistics and sociology and how do we look at things from a design perspective Um, And you helped to do a lot of things with it, right? Um, Use more check boxes instead of narratives. Increase the white space on the page, which makes it longer but easier to read. Um, Providing for some narrative but making the um, boxes fairly small to give the indication we don't need a lot of information but to kind of keep it close. Um, Changing a lot of the way I had worded things because it was familiar to me but not familiar to somebody reading from the outside. Um, and so it was really designed, aimed to change the design to get more actionable information for the prosecuting attorney, which I'm happy to report has worked. So she's gotten several of these back. and oh. very pleased with the way they've come. We um, She wants to tweak it a little bit more, um, but it actually has, and it is having an impact. And that actually has led me to think that this is something that needs to be redesigned not just for prosecutors reaching out, but for defense counsel as well. I mean, anytime we as yeah. lawyers, even those of us who have a lot of experience working with this community think we kind of know what we're doing and we really don't. And it's good for us to kind of take that step back and look at things from a different angle and in incorporating different metrics and different information to only improve the way we're doing things. And in fact, I took your design Gary and I, um, with some of my former clients and they're like, wow, this is great. <laughs> like, this is much easier to read. Oh. Um, and they had very positive things to say about it. They're like, well, Marissa, why don't you change this from the Innocence Project? I was like, well, I'm working on it, dude. Like, we'll get there. Uh, <laughs> so they were, like, they were yeah. off and running, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's great to hear that. I, I do want to say that, um, number one, it's even hard for my 14-year-old to answer those kinds of questions like, yeah. tell me about your day. Uh, so yeah. forget about being in prison, unless she counts be it living in my home as being in prison sometimes she might, but it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's challenging for her. I think it's, it's a really great example of as we talk about like an experience design again, especially in, in, you know, customer experience, the voice of the customer, right. It's this idea of, of under you don't speak about you don't speak in ways that are clear to people internally, but alienating to the customer because right. it's not designing for the customer, it's designing for you. And it, it is interesting to see how many of these principles, as we're talking, really do cross over, whether it be you know customer centricity or whether it be user centricity or voice of the customer or you know, these these participatory design approaches. Not that they're cure-alls or panaceas, but at least they get you looking with the right kind of Vision and hearing with the right kind of ears, so you're sensitive to the impacts those decisions have on people that you're trying to serve or reach.
1: Sure, and it gives them a level of autonomy and agency because you're talking to them at a level that they can understand better, right? So they feel more part of the process and more um, engaged in it than you know, alienated out of it, and that can only benefit.
0: You hope so. And it does lead me to, you know, no running up against it. But for you, this is a a grand question. But I think for for an organization that talks about, you know, trying to create fairness in in the legal justice, criminal justice system, this might work. You know, what would a human-centered legal system look like for you, ideally? I mean, what would it be its general contours of components where it was designed to serve all of those who are involved in it?
1: I mean, that's a fascinating question. I don't know that I can really have a comprehensive answer to that. I think one thing that makes the criminal justice system unique is that no one wants to be in it, right? I mean, victims don't want to be in it. Criminal defendants don't want to be in it. So you have these unwilling participants in the process. The only one who even somewhat wants to be there are the lawyers and the judges. Everybody else in that courtroom does not want to be there, um, but they've been dragged in through no fault. No, well, not no fault, but you know, no design of their own, I should say. So, um, you know, I think you're, you're starting with, with the very weird, construct. It's not like in a sales situation or really, I guess medical, maybe the patient doesn't really want to be there, but they do because they want to get better. They want that outcome at least. The defendant does not want the outcome of being held accountable and put in prison. Um, So, But I think that one very clear issue in the criminal justice system in particular is is redesigning the way lawyers, and I'll speak this from my own experience in the courtroom, how lawyers are trained to interact with their clients or, their, or the victims or witnesses with whom they're working. right? We And I come across this because I do a lot of work with, as I said, interrogations, and we talk about cognitive interviewing and and you know, more narrative structures. If a lawyer is interviewing a witness or even a defendant for trial, they're interested in one thing, which is you know, keeping the narrative limited to what is admissible at trial, proving my case or disproving the commonwealth's case, the state's case. You know, they're not listening to that person. They're not letting them tell their story in a way that is at all easy for them, accommodating for them, and certainly from the victim's persp- perspective at all toward helping them heal from their trauma. All we're caring right. about initially, and th- we don't say this, but all we care about is how do I get you to answer the questions I need you to answer in the way I want you to answer them without telling you how to answer it? Because I can't do that. So we're suggesting, we're moving, we're, we're asking questions. And the way the system is set up, it's not for narrative, right? It's all about admissible evidence and proof. So at least in terms of training lawyers, even if we can't change the, the trial itself, which I think we, we can, but at least in terms of with lawyers and how we train them and how they Are used to dealing with people, train them on cognitive interviewing, train them on different ways of accessing memory in a way that is empowering and gives agency and autonomy to the people they're working with and doesn't infantilize them and doesn't make them feel outside of the process, but they're part of the process and that we are starting to account for their trauma on the side of the victim and their fear and anxiety, certainly on the side of the defendant. We as lawyers have a long way to go to revise how we approach this system and our jobs in it. And I think taking a more um, design focused aspect to that makes a lot of sense, um, certainly in you know isolated aspects of the criminal justice system, if not as a, as an overall unit. Um, but there's no, no doubt that we need to account for that more. I mean, lawyers are very arrogant people. We think we're doing this absolutely right. Um, you, you can't tell us otherwise, but we need to hear that message and that there are better ways to do things and we need to try to incorporate some of those design elements certainly in any way because um, we're certainly not doing it right now. There's a lot of room for improvement.
0: Well, if, if it's any help, fa- faculty are uh, very arrogant as well.
1: <laughs> like, like lawyers and professors. So we, just, we think everything just falls at us.
0: It, it is, that's another podcast about what it's like to work with lawyers and professors all the time. And I can't <laughs> It's great, but I'm sure it's not awful. I said that, not you. I'm sure, <laughs> I mean, it, does, it does sound like y'all are going to be busy. And it sounds like you are, uh, you're doing a lot of great stuff to try to make a, a vital system in people's lives, to make them whole, to restore them, both, you know, uh, people who are victims and people who are perpetrators. Everyone needs to be made whole as well as the people in the system and try to make the system work for everybody in, in a way that's more healing and growthful and, and helpful in the long
1: run. Right. I mean, that is that should be certainly the goal of it, right? You don't want a perpetrator who comes into a system to only learn how to be a perpetrator better. You want them to want to reform and want to be able to reenter society as a productive member. And you know, certainly in terms of the victim, you don't want them to be, um, you know, weigh, wear that heavy burden of trauma for all their lives. You need a system that's responsive to their trauma and can help them move through that. So you know, there's certainly a lot of growth in the system that we need to do you know, 100 years ago. Um, but it's certainly nice and, and very fulfilling to be part of efforts that are keeping that as the lodestar now, um, That where it really has not been part of the discussion for a very, very long time.
0: I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been fantastic talking.
1: What a fun conversation. I don't know how much your listeners will like, but it certainly was extraordinarily enjoyable for me. We
0: want to thank Marissa Bluestein of the Quattrone Center for the Fair Administration of Justice for exploring how to design a better criminal justice system. Given how vast this system is, there is a lot of work ahead of us. But if the journey of a thousand miles begin with a single step, Marissa is already hundreds of miles down the road, so the rest of us just need to work harder to catch up. And as always, we would love to hear your feedback about our shows and your own experiences at feedback at experience We really enjoy getting your comments and getting your thoughts. So feel free in this time of lockdown to reach out and share them with us. And thanks for your continued support. Hopefully you are taking us on your walks or runs or whatever way you're able to escape. We really do enjoy being part of that process. And we all have to find our little ways of carving out time for ourselves in the midst of all these anxiety and uncertainty. We hope you're able to do so, and we love being part of your journey towards mental wellness and physical safety. And on that note, we hope that you all continue to stay safe and healthy. Remember that physical distancing does not mean social isolation. Reach out, stay connected, find others, talk on the phone like you did when you were in high school, leaving that video stream behind. Everything does not need to be a Zoom or Skype session. And make sure that you practice acts of kindness and work together as we all try to get through this as a community, trying to reach that end point, which seems far off, but we're closer than we were yesterday. And with that, we will see you next week on Experience by Design Studio. Take care, everybody.